A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Gare out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. To Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehuda Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites. And before we start our Malava Malka episode about the stipler, I just want to announce that the upcoming cities episode in our cities series is going to be about the five towns. And it would be a bit ironic if a place like the five towns won't have uh, several sponsors for the episode. So let's try to live up to the five towns reputation and and you can be in touch with me about the sponsorship. I do want to mention a correction from the recent Miami episode, which about, I mean, quite a few uh, listeners have submitted. So I guess this is of uh, paramount importance. Uh, apparently, Miami is in Dade County and not in Palm Beach County. So that's very, very important. I was talking in general about South Florida, but um, all right, we got our counties uh Got to get our counties right. Um, also, in tribute to a recent passing of a very uh, historic and uh, important figure, um, Rav, Rabbi Adin Steinsaltz, a scholar, philosopher, a very interesting character. He grew up in a home where his father was a communist who fought in the Spanish Civil War as a volunteer. And he uh, eventually, Rav Adin Steinsaltz becomes a Balchuva. He gets close with Lubavitch, with Chabad. He also was close, he was very um, into the Kutzkers, and he became close with uh, the Ger Rebbe, the Beis Yisrael as well. He wrote uh, quite extensively, and of course famously on Shas, but also on Kabbalah and philosophy. He was very independent-minded. He was known to also stir up controversy in many circles, and he was very involved with Yiddishkeit and revitalizing Judaism in the Soviet Union, a very multifaceted and interesting uh, scholar. So he just passed away the other day. Um, getting to the stipler, Rabbi Yaakov Yisrael Kanievsky, um, whose yard site is coming up this this coming week, later in the week. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about him and his life. Uh, amazing uh, Torah leader of the last generation. And, uh, we'll focus uh, primarily in his earlier years. Uh, a friend of mine, that told me of an amazing experience, which I think will bring us into the topic, when he was a young boy in Camp Aguda in 1985, in the summer, um, and the 
head counselor or whoever it was, director or someone in charge over there, uh, called together the entire camps, uh, the, all the campers into some central room or dining room. I was never in Agudas. So I don't know how this, these things work, especially not in 1985. Um, and, and they called them together and he had the lights dimmed and he had them all like sit on the floor, made it very dramatic for the children and said to them, announced to them that today is a very sad day for the Jewish people because in Eretz Yisrael, in a place called B'nai Brak, the great stipler, the big tzaddik, the stipler going, um, has passed away, he was nifter. And therefore, it's, uh, some, it's a sad day. And he said, my friend who was there, he told me that it made such an impression on him, it was his first exposure to the idea of what a tzaddik is, what a Torah leader is, and how when one of them passes on, then it's a tragedy, it's a sad day, it's something to mourn. And that influenced him for the rest of uh, for the rest of his life. So the the uh, passing of the stipler was uh, seared and made a big impression. Um, in that context, it's interesting that Rav Volba, Rav Shleim Volba, he said he when the stipler had passed, so he used to seek out the stipler's advice, like many others also would. Rav Volba would 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 speak to him about everything, about all educational and and uh, any any challenge or problem that. He faced with as an educator, he would bring it to the stipler. And uh, Revolva said when the stipler passed on, the Revolva mentioned how every generation has a Torah leader who understands the needs and knows how to guide and give out advice that's specific for the needs of the generation because he understands the people. He said Hashem makes, ensures that every generation has that person who has a keen understanding that for the specific needs and, and challenges um, of that of the of that generation, he says, and the stipler was the one who did, and therefore now with the passing of the stipler, Volba said, who he hasn't left anyone else in his stead who understands the unique needs of modern times, of the challenges of the youth of this generation, and uh, and that's an irreplaceable loss to a certain extent that he was expressing, so. The the um, the stipler actually came from a Hasidic background, the Hasidic home. Um, his father was a Chernobyler Hasid in Ukraine, and um, they were Hasidim. Uh, they were followers of Mordechai Dov Tversky of Harnestipel, which was a branch of the Chernobyler dynasty. The famous American Tverskys are Abraham J. Tversky and Michal Tversky in Milwaukee, and ones in originally from Denver and other places, they're all, they're all uh, descendants of that dynasty, of, of uh, the uh, Harnestipel Hasidic dynasty of Chernobyl in the Ukraine. And, and he's born in Toshan, but they moved to Harnestipel when he was orphaned from his father at a young age. His father was a sheikh, uh, a simple you know, Hasid, and he was actually named Yaakov Yisrael, for, or Yisrael Yaakov, whatever it was, um, uh, after after the, one of the original Chernobyl Rebbe's, Reb Yaakov Yisrael Tversky of Cherkas, he was a son of Reb Matl of Chernobyl, the Chernobyl Magid, and and that's that's the that's the uh, family and the part the the Hasidic background that he grew up in. Uh, at quite a young age, uh, he joined the Navardic Yeshiva. He was like eleven or twelve, quite very young. And it was actually quite common for Hasidim to join one of the Navardic branches. 
um, more than any other Lithuanian-style yeshiva. They very often joined the Vardic for several reasons. Uh, number one, the Navardikers did active recruitment throughout the Pale of Settlement to join, uh, to recruit very often Hasidic youth to join their yeshivas. So there was this active recruitment, which most other Lithuanian yeshivas did not have. Um, also, the the Navardic yeshiva, they enabled Hasidim to feel comfortable because they didn't have what was common to most uh, Lithuanian-style yeshivas. They, most Lithuanian-style yeshivas like Slabatka or Mir or Tels or even or, or most of them, either way, they had the boys dressed in a more modern dress, a stylish dress, they were clean-shaven, whereas in the Vardic, they still wore long coats and very often had beards, and the, and the Hasidim would feel more comfortable in that type of environment. The, another reason why many Hasidim joined the Navar, were more likely to join a Navardic yeshiva was simply because Navardic was widespread and with branches all over Russia, um, so there's just simply it was more available. Um, so he joins a Navardic yeshiva, and he eventually, um, during World War One, he's actually drafted into the army. He was one of the only Gedele Yisrael who served in in active combat in an, in, an, in an army. Uh, very very rare. Most most Gedele Yisrael in their youth were able to get out of the draft somehow, either by running away or. You know, each one had their story, but the the stiplers served in in the army. Um, it's it's unclear from the different sources if it was the Tsar's army, which is more likely, or if it was later on in the in the war, and it was actually the Red Army for the communists. Either way, there's all kinds of stories with him in the army that he wore a summer uniform during the winter because he suspected that the winter uniform had shotness. So during the cold Russian winter, he wore a thin. Um, uh, a summer uniform. There's his t- stories of his attempts uh, at keeping Shabbos, and he was once punished, and he had to run the gauntlet and was beaten for it. Either way, all kinds of stories when he from the time that he served in the army, and uh, w- still being in Navardic, he rejoined Navardic when he's when he's released from the ser- military service, and uh, he joins uh, the Navardic, uh, jumping the border in 1922 when the entire movement decides to leave Russia and steal across the border into an independent Poland, where he joins the flagship uh, Navardic Yeshiva in Bialystok. Um, and there he eventually marries the sister of the Chazoynish, it's in Miriam, the, um, the Chazoynish uh, married off, he was, she was already an orphan, and the Chazoynish was involved in marrying her off. Rav um, Rav whose father was Rav Shmaryo Yosef Karelitz, who the, the stipler eventually named his son, Rav Chaim Kanievsky, uh, may he live and be well, he named him Shmaryo Yosef Chaim, who was after his his uh, fa- his father-in-law. Um, either way, so he becomes the Chazoyn Ish's brother-in-law, and they, the two maintained a very, very close and uh, incredibly close and warm relationship until the Chazoyn Ish's passing. The Chazoyn Ish actually lived in his house in his later years, and his sister took care of the Chazanish. Um, from there, the Stipler becomes a Rebbe in the Navardic Yeshiva in Pinsk. And in 19, from 1927 to 1934, about eight years, he's a Rebbe in the Pinsk Navardic Yeshiva. The Yeshiva there was was a, 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 a prestigious Talmud Chacham student of Navardic named Reb Shmuel Weintraub. And this was one of the main branches of the Navardic uh, 
network in the interwar period. In interwar Poland or Eastern Europe, it was mainly in Poland, but there's other parts of Eastern Europe as well. The main branches, there was tens of branches of Novartic, but the, the, the large and prestigious ones were in Bialystok, in Mezrich, in Pinsk, in Warsaw, and in Riga, which was in Latvia. So most of them were in Poland, but there's also in Latvia. So it's actually while he was in Pinsk that his son, the uh, Reb Chaim, today Reb Chaim Kanievsky, was born. And there, when the stipend was in Pinsk, he maintained a, a, a warm relationship with Reb Baruch Epstein, the Torah Tamima. And he wanted the Torah Tamima, according to at least one of the sources, he wanted the Torah Tamima to be the Sandik at Reb Chaim Kanievsky's bris. And because there were so many um, um, uh, uh, important guests and rabbis and all kinds of great people who were at the bris, so the stipler, at least according to one source of the story, he decided not to give it to the Torah Tamima so that all these important rabbis shouldn't feel slighted that he's giving it to someone who's a banker and not to one of the rabbis who were a guest. So he did not give the sandik to Torah Tamima. On the other hand, he felt that the Torah Tamima was the one who most deserved it, and so he couldn't give it to anyone else, so the stipler took it himself. So at the end of the day, he was the sandik at his son of Chaim's uh, bris. I don't know whether it's true or not. You could take it how you want. But either way, um, the, the, he moves to Eretz Yisrael in, uh, in 1934, and he joins with his brother-in-law, who had moved several months before the Chazinish, and he gets a position um, in Navardic in Israel. Navardic in Israel was from the early yeshivas that arrives in, 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 in uh, then what was Palestine, First, Reb Hill Vitkind opened the Novartic branch in Tel Aviv, and then shortly afterwards, Reb Matisio Shtitzkal um, opened the Novartic branch in Bnei Brak. It was actually the first yeshiva in Bnei Brak. And um, the Chazayin Ish, who was not exactly a supporter of the Muslim movement, to say the least, he, was, he wrote quite a bit about it. It's really a topic for another time when we talk about the opposition to the Muslim movement. But he, Hazanish saw the potential of the Navarticers for their, their, the fiery, uh, the way they could in, help invigorate Yiddishkeit in the Yishuv, in the settlement of the Holy Land at the time. So the Hazanish did join forces with many of the Navarticers and, uh, and, and, and get them, and, and together they were able to build a lot of the Torah and lay the foundations of a lot of the uh, Torah. Uh, society of the land of Israel at the time. Now, the Navardic Yeshiva Menebrak was started with a group of Navardic students who came from Europe and from Poland. And one of them was a student of the Navardic Yeshiva in Mezrich, a fellow by the name of, who eventually changed his name, he Hebraicized his name to Shmuel Ben Artsy. He later left Navardic. He was a prolific author, but he did return to traditional Judaism toward the end of his li- long life. He lived till he was like 97. He only passed away a couple of years ago. His daughter, Shmuel ben daughter, Sarah, is married to a fellow by the name of Binyamin Netanyahu, her second marriage, his third, but her second. And uh, so she is, is so Binyamin Netanyahu's shever was actually a big Navardiker Talmud, one of the founders of the Navardic Yeshiva in Bnei Brak, ironically. So when Ramatzio Shtitzkal opened the yeshiva in Ebrak, the Chazanish and Rav Kook and Rav Benzion Chayuziel and Rav Akhmad and other Reuven Kass from Patatikva and a lot of the great rabbinical dignitaries, the leading rabbis in Palestine at the time, came to the opening ceremony. In fact, Rav Kook and the Chazanish had a whole discussion after the ceremony, 
Um, it was a very major event. It was the first yeshiva of B'nai Brak in this new settlement. And the yeshiva, um, so the stipler becomes the Rosh Yeshiva there. And uh, the yeshiva closed down at the end of the 1950s, after the stipler had been there for about 25 years as the Rashiva, besides for his eight years in, in Pinsk. He was about 60 at the time, and so he kind of retired, um, but he still maintained a semi-position at the Kail Chazanish, and he went on to write his magnum opus, the Kehilas Yaakov, a classic sefer which achieved major popularity in his own lifetime, an amazing sefer which encompassed all of Shas, this is among, I mean, he wrote many, many Sfarim besides the Kilis Yaakov. The multi-volume Kilis Yaakov was his uh, primary sefer. In fact, his Mechutan, uh, Rebel Yashiv, Be'ezeshomel Yashiv, he, he held his, he held uh, the, the stipler in very high esteem and the sefer, the Kilis Yaakov, he said, Rebel Yashiv said about the Kilis Yaakov, it's not a big deal to write a sefer that no one understands. And there's quite a few people who do that. They write Sfarim that no one understands. He said, but what it is quite an accomplishment is to write a multi-volume work encompassing all of Shas, written in an accessible and clear fashion that everyone can understand and, and uh, be able to uh, use for the sugya, sugyas of, of Shas. So that's in a major uh, contribution of his Sefer. Now, the stipler eventually um, comes to a leadership position um, following, his, following the passing of the Chazin Ish, um took quite a while to he slowly moved into leadership to assume that position um and he's actually largely responsible for Rav Shach's rise to leadership the two were very close and Rav Shach was an unknown while the stipler was very well known because of his relation to the Chazanish and his position in Novartic and he and he was the one who pushed Rav Shach and uh, and uh, and uh, got you know supported him and pretty much signed off on anything that Rav Shach uh, uh, said and and uh, and his position of leadership. In fact, the Stipler uh, promoted the split off from Agudas Yisrael way before Rav Shach did in the 1980s. The Stipler was already pushing for it uh, uh, before that. Now, in, in the Stipler in his lifetime became the closest thing that the Lithuanian Torah world had to a Hasidic Rebbe. Um, he was pretty much deaf. He was very, very hard of hearing for most of his life. So you had to write notes to speak to him. And it became almost like a kvittel. And the stipler was a holy Jew. He, he was, you know, said all kinds of uh, Ruach HaKodesh and, 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 and uh, miracles that he was able to uh, accomplish. And he became known like that in his lifetime. So it, literally, he became uh, very similar in many ways to a Hasidic Rebbe, and I always thought perhaps it was because of his Hasidic background that enabled that uh, to, 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 to perhaps be that way. Um, there's another interesting um, aspect of his leadership and influence is that the Novartic influence on the general society in B'nai Brak and maybe Haredi society in general in Israel and beyond um, because of the stipler um, very, you know, a lot of Navardic aspects uh, permeated his personality, his uh, way of leadership, and uh, eventually influenced the society that he lived in. Very, very conservative. Um, also, the way of dress, um, the outlook on life, you know, the the beard, um, the way, the the outward expression of of of, of the 
of the, the way that he presented himself and expected his students to present themselves, very anti-modernity, the insularity of, of the way he wanted his followers to live their life and the society, um, the religious society that he influenced, very wary of any exposure to the outside world and very critical of it. His anti-Zionism, for instance, for instance was almost like the Satmarov, um, aside from voting, obviously. He's the only um, Torah personality associated with the Goddess Yisrael, to the best of my knowledge, to invoke in his writings the Shalosh voice, the three oaths that the Satmarov was so renowned for speaking about in his opposition to Zionism, which, uh, which is unique, because in the Aguda circles, their opposition to Zionism was limited to their uh, being very secular, but not a fundamental challenge to the Zionist ideal, like with with the with the Shalosh voice. Um, in fact, there's a there is an interesting article. I know that a lot of a lot of um, our listeners um, like uh, like like Professor Mark Shapiro and listening to his lectures and his books and everything. So it's quite unknown, as far as I know, not many people know about it. An article that he wrote about the Stipler, a nice interesting article um, that he has a lot of uh, about his his uh, outlook on life and his leadership. Um, either way, so I'd argue that there's much more of an Avardic influence than Slobodka. I know it's contrary to popular belief. People like saying that today, in the, to, in the post-war world, there was much more, uh, Slobodka had much more of an influence. I'd, uh, I'd argue otherwise, that actually, especially in Israel, um, and primarily because of the Stipler and a few others like him, uh, Navardic had much more of a lasting impact uh, and influence on the makeup of society and its ideals and values and and outlook on on life in general. The Stipler became renowned for his advice, his wisdom, and in many areas of Jewish life and marriage and building a Jewish home and Shalom Bias and Dr. Yaakov Greenwald, uh, who passed away uh, not long ago, a famous religious psychologist. So he he was extremely close to the Stipler and wrote books based on the advice and wisdom that he, he got from speaking to the, to the Stipler about such a, an amazing uh, wide array of issues. Uh, the Stipler was one of the first uh, top-tier Torah leaders to, direct, to directly address uh, the issue of OCD, uh, obsessive-compulsive disorder, and to make a sharp distinction between OCD and Yeres Shemayim. Um, and today is something that's taken for granted by every educator in the Torah world, but the Stipler was one of the first ones, especially at his level, to, to directly address it and to write about it. And he wrote quite an extensive correspondence of letters that were later published, collected and published, and he addressed issues of, of uh, education and challenges facing the youth and modern-day issues and challenges. He was very, very accessible. Anyone could sit down with him. He was very patient with people understanding. He gave time for anyone seeking his counsel, um, which sometimes contrasted with his sometimes sharp and, and, and positions of exclusivity on public policy. But in, in personal uh, interactions, he was very warm and accessible, and, and especially the amount of time that he gave to people, um, which is also a, you know, a, a, which was important to him. So that's a, a little bit about the Stipler. Of course, there's so much more to say, but we'll we'll stop it at that. So this was Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com for questions, comments, sources, sponsorships, virtual tours and lectures, and anything else.
Um, you could subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean, follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.